Thanks, Case uh, for sharing. Um, yeah, a glimpse of what probably uh, the great majority, well, maybe like 99.9% uh, .9 of the world will never be able to experience. Um, so please uh, continue to keep Keshla in your prayers and uh, do take her out to coffee uh, or lunch and hear more and let your soul be enlarged uh, by the flame of God's love for the world and for his people. Uh, I remember a professor talking about um, an art exhibit. Um, there's an art exhibit, and it, it basically had four, uh, four paintings in it. Uh, the first painting was uh, a wheat field. Okay? So from one side to the other, from front to back, as far as you could see, there were rows and rows and rows of uh, wheat fields. The second uh, painting was of a mother who was distressed because her little boy had gotten lost in that wheat field. And so she had called the neighbors together to say quickly, we've got to go find uh, my son who's lost in this massive field of wheat. The third painting showed a picture of all these people stretched out from one side to the other, holding hands. And one person, the leader, the, the, the mayor, whomever it was, said, let's comb this field from side to side until we find that lost boy. And the fourth and final picture was of the father having found his son dead. And he said, if only we had joined hands sooner. This morning, Harvest Church, our beloved, I want to join hands together and march in order that we might see what Jesus wants us to see. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This is the verse upon which our congregation is built it's very near and dear to my heart. In fact, one of our sisters, Sarah, when she went to Jordan, brought back a, a hanging pendant that was cross-stitched and written in Arabic is this passage. And I stare at it every day and, and I think and I dream and I'm reminded of who we are. And as we read this together, I want to look at it over the next three weeks, the reality of the harvest, the urgency of the harvest, the Lord of the harvest. And I want to remind us of why we exist, why we are called harvest for those who are new and what it is that we're called to do and who it is that we're called to be and why I, as I remind myself why I'm here, why God called me here, why I stay here, why I remain here until the burden of this passage lifts off of my heart. I want us to join hands together in order that we might be able to see what God sees in our world. This is God's word, Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word. 
when Jesus saw the crowds that were gathering around him, what Jesus saw and what everybody else saw was different. And I implore to you that if we want to be a church that lives and exists and breathes for the harvest, that we need to see the things that Jesus sees in order that we might feel the things that he feels, in order that we might do the things that he does. What does it mean? What did Jesus see? And if we want to be like Christ in our world, what must we see also? The first thing is that we need to see individual souls with individual stories. We look at the crowds. We look at individual souls who have individual stories. Tonight is the uh, closing ceremonies of the 2016 Summer Olympics, and it's gone by rather quickly. All told, there were over 11,500 athletes competing for over 200 different nations in 41 different events. And I think the most knowledgeable of us may know at most 50 of these 11,500 people. There's a reason why we tune into the Olympics. Uh, we tune in to watch sports like, of the 41 sports, we watch basketball, right? Volleyball, swimming, gymnastics. That's pretty much it, right? <laughs> Maybe soccer, right? Uh, but we don't turn on the Olympics. Oh, I can't wait to get high. Sorry, guys, I've got to leave dinner early. I've got to watch the Olympics. Olympics tonight, what's on? Oh, there's a badminton semifinal. No, no one does that. Right? Or no one, oh, I'm so excited tonight. Fencing is on, right? Or ping pong finals, yeah, or archery, or, yeah, we don't want, oh, uh, come on, be, that's so mean, DL. Those are exciting. I know they're exciting when you come across them, but no one turns on the TV to watch those events, right? And the networks are not dumb, they know that. Okay, they know, no one is like banging down their doors to beat through traffic in order to make it to watch, oh, rhythmic gymnastics, right? Gymnastics, yeah, but the rhythmic kind, synchronized swimming, no, nobody cares about that stuff. The networks know that. I'm sorry if one of your relatives is in the Olympics for platform diving or whatever. The networks know that, so what do they do? Well, they try and draw you in. It's not just an Olympic event. They draw you in by saying, for most people, the prospect of winning a gold medal is a dream of a lifetime. But for some, getting there is half the journey. And then they tell this story. It's a dream of a lifetime, but they've already lived through a lifetime of nightmares or something like that. And then they proceed to tell a story because they know, yeah, we all know the story of Michael Phelps and uh, we all know the story of Simone Biles and, oh, Usain Bolt, it's his last time, or uh, the Kerry Walsh, the volleyball player. Ah, oh, yeah, it's their swan song, they're going out. But we don't know the story of the rest of the 11,500 athletes. And so they try and bring us in by telling us their story. You've heard the story maybe of the first time ever in the Olympics there was a team made up of refugees from different countries as they were escaping and fleeing. And there was an 18-year-old girl I forget what her name is, uh, but she was fleeing Syria, her and her sister, right? Uh, fleeing Syria when her home got destroyed. And so 20 people fled and jumped on a lifeboat meant for six people. What happens when you put 20 people in a lifeboat of six people? That boat begins to fill up with water. 
And of the 20 people, only four people knew how to swim, two guys and two girls. And the two girls were sisters. And so the four of them began pulling the boat. The two guys gave up and they couldn't go on any longer. And so they couldn't swim. So these two sisters were left swimming for three and a half hours, pulling a boat of 18 other people until finally they made it to shore. And because of their heroic exploits, 20 people were saved. And so the story is told of how this girl fled war-torn Syria in order to make it to the Olympics. And all of a sudden, the 100-meter woman's butterfly becomes no longer about the American superstars, but it becomes about wanting to cheer on this young girl who gave up everything in order to live that dream. Why do they do that? Because they know that in a crowd of 11,500 people, we don't care about any of that. We're not going to watch anything except the people we actually care about. Therefore, they tell a story in order to bring us in because when we see that these are individual people with individual stories, we actually begin to care about their lives. Matthew 9.35 says, The crowds are coming to Jesus. And it says he sees them differently from the way that we see them. In fact, in chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 9, it says all these crowds of people are coming to him. Chapter 8, it says when he came down from the mountainside, verse 1, large crowds followed him. So as it was in chapter 9, it was in chapter 8, that large crowds are following Jesus. But you ever notice that in the miracles that Jesus does, they are, except for the feeding of the multitudes, every single act of miracle and healing that Jesus does is to individuals. It's a paralyzed man. It's a dead girl and a sick woman. It is a centurion's child who is sick. It is a leper who is healed. It is the mother-in-law of Peter. This is all Matthew 8 and 9. It is a blind person who is healed, a demon-possessed person who's been released and freed in order that his muteness might be healed and cured. Jesus has crowds coming to him, but he sees them as individuals because he knows that each of them has a story. And Jesus is telling us, would you see beyond the crowds? Would you see individuals with individual souls that matter with individual stories that cause them to be the way that they are? Because you see, the reality for me is that quite frankly, I would rather see crowds sometimes. I'd rather see, I'd rather hear that there were 49 people who died at a nightclub in Orlando than to have to look at their and see their individual stories and to hear about their family members who are distraught and to hear about their children who are left without parents. Because if it's just 49 people, I don't have to care. I can just go about my business, but if I see individuals and I see their individual stories, then all of a sudden I feel something. And what I feel is there's a sense of compassion. Either I do something about it. If I do something, then that feeling will, will, will dissipate or I'll feel validated in it. Or if I don't do something, I'll feel guilty. And the great majority of the time, I'd rather do nothing and stay in my comfort, thank you very much, and see crowds than to see individuals. Because if I see individuals, then I actually have to care. And a lot of times, I'd rather not care about people who are harassed and helpless. I'd rather just go about my business, 
sometimes, but Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus didn't just love people. You know, people who say that, oh, you know what? Let's go around. Okay, first, hey, icebreaker. I don't know you. You don't know me. Let's go around. Let's, let's share. And so people go around. And what's one thing about you that you love? Oh, I love people. You know, people like that. I just, I love people. I love being around people. I love the smell of people. I love the way people look. I like watching people. There are people who like that. They love people. Jesus didn't just love people. He loved individual persons. It's easy for us to say, I love people. But as soon as they get close enough to you that you begin to hear their problems, you begin to hear their dirt, and you begin to get their dirt on you, all of a sudden, it's like, you know what? That's too close for comfort. Jesus wasn't the kind of person who said, I love people. He was a person who loved the person next to him. He didn't just love humanity. He loved individual human beings. And he says, do you see that in people? Do you see when you walk through school in the crowded hallways, don't just see people. Do you see individual souls with individual stories? When you hang out with your play dates at the splash pad and you see all these mommies, do you see individual souls? And every soul is precious and every soul matters to Jesus. Do we see these things when we look at people? When you look at the mass of humanity in the malls, what is it that you see? And I'd rather not see individuals a lot of times. I tell people, hey, Monday's my day off. I don't want to hang out with people. I don't want to see people. Sometimes I'll joke around and say, please don't get sick. (laughs) Please don't go to the ER. Please don't die on me on a Monday. I need that time. If it's football season, it's Monday night football. Otherwise, I got to be with my family. Give me some time. But really, it's because I don't want to feel any. I'm tired. I've seen people for six days out there. I just need one day to decompress and and to detox. But Jesus, in the midst of the busiest of days, nonstop, morning until night, healing, casting out demons, ushering in the kingdom, teaching and preaching. He looks at the crowds and he has compassion on them. This is what we're called to be as a church, to see differently from what other people see, to look at people with new eyes, because when we see and what we see determines what we feel. If we just see crowds, we don't have to feel anything, but we see individual souls with individual stories whose eternity matters. All of a sudden, our hearts begin to change. The first thing Jesus sees is individual souls with individual stories. But the second thing, he doesn't stop there. He sees dying people. Or waiting for a savior. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I'm not going to go into a, a lot of the sheep without a shepherd, but basically suffice to say that a sheep without a shepherd is just waiting to die. And because of that, Jesus says, how can I not be moved by them? Thursday night um, after dinner, our family uh, family went outside. Olivia and I were doing some very light yard work, pulling up weeds and things in the yard. And uh, Elijah and Manny and Elise, they were all uh, riding their bikes or their scooters and uh, going around the neighborhood. And 
At one point, Manny stopped in our driveway and, and she saw a, a moth on the ground. And it was just standing, sitting there. And she said, Daddy, what is this thing doing? I said, it's just chilling. <laughs> and she's like, what, what, what's wrong with it? And I said, I don't know. What do you mean what's wrong with it? She's like, it's not moving. So I, I put my foot next to it and tried to kind of tap its wing, and it wasn't moving. I said, it must be injured. And she said, what is injured? That it means it got hurt, and so its wings are not strong enough, so it can't fly. And so hearing the commotion, Elijah walks over, and Manny says, Elijah, be careful. Don't step on it. And so instinctively, Elijah tries to step on it. And so... <laughs> Uh, Manny says, no, Elijah, no, get back. Don't step on it. And so he tries to spit on the moth. Like, no, Elijah, no. And then Elise, hearing the commotion, walks over and seeing what Elijah does, tries to spit on the moth also. Little girls, little boys are good at spitting, but little girls are not. And so she's all over her mouth. (laughs) And Manny's like, no, don't step on it. Don't step on it. And so she's like trying to protect them from it. She's like, go, you guys go. And so Elijah says, let's go, Elise. Let's go ride our bikes. And so they get on their scooter and they go off. And then Manny's about to get on. Uh, and she's like, but, but she can't leave the precious moth behind. And so she says, mommy, mommy. Like Olive is like sweating, pulling out these weeds. and Like, mommy, come over here. <laughs> and so Olive comes in. She's like, make sure no one steps on the moth. And so, and then Olive's sitting there guarding the moth while uh, Manny goes off. Because Manny saw something. (laughs) She saw something that the other kids didn't see. She said, you know what? Without me, (laughs) without me, this moth is going to die. If I don't do something about it, this moth is going to die. And so moved with compassion, she would rather call out her little brother and sister and call her mother from all the way over in the other side of the garden to come and guard that moth because she realized that I am crucial to the salvation of this moth. Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, if I don't do something, then these people are just left to die. In fact, when it says they were harassed, and helpless. That's literally what it means. It means they are like sheep that have been skinned and they're left waiting to die. Jesus says every person that you see on your campus, every person that you see in your workplace, every person that you see as they go jogging by in your neighborhood, says every person that you see, if they don't know Jesus, is a person who's just waiting to die without a savior. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, do you see that? Do you see the things that I see? And he's moved with compassion for it. In other words, what is it that Jesus sees? He sees what you and I don't see. We look at people and we give human labels based on what we see of them. As I look around this place, I can place a human label on people. Okay, on the good side, there's a good-looking young man. Okay, there's a person who's made it successfully in this world. There's a person who's got a great GPA who's going to make it. He's going to make it in this world. I see. So, and on the other side, you see different things. I see a person who's beat up. I see a person who's lonely. I see a person who's a loser. I see a person who's a ner- whatever it is that you see. Jesus cuts through all of that stuff, all of the, the veneer and all of the covering. And he gets to the heart and he sees people who are dying. And he says, will you see what I see? 
1999, great movie came out. It was called The Sixth Sense. About a little weird boy played by Macaulay Culkin. In that movie, he had this uncanny ability to see things that other people couldn't see. And using that ability to see, what did he do? He was able to help people by bringing healing and bringing help to them in order to bring families together, to bring reconciliation, to bring hope. What is it that that young boy saw? He famously saw dead people. Can I ask you a question? Do you see dead people? Everywhere we go, the crowds are full of dead people. That's what Jesus saw. Dead people at the Verizon wireless store. Dead people at the Dr. Phyllis playground. Dead people at the university hospital. They're all around if we would open our eyes to see the things that Jesus sees. Because he sees in people what we don't see. Throughout North Korea, throughout the nations, there are people who are dying. Right? Throughout the terrorist groups, there are people who are dying. Jesus cuts through all of that stuff and he sees they're waiting to die without a without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. Everyone whose eternity matters. That's what I see. And so there's a burden that Jesus feels. And there's a burden that he wants to place in our hearts that causes us to feel the things that he feels. To say, I can't sit still anymore. To realize that I don't, it's not enough for me just to come in here and to sing songs and to hear testimonies and to hear a message and, and say, yeah, that was awesome. I'm so loved. And, and then to go out into the world and, and, and to wait until the next Sunday. Do you feel something different in your heart? Do you see something different? Do you feel compassion within your heart? Say, that's what I want you to see. I don't want you to understand. That's what I want you to feel and to breathe because what we see determines what we feel and what we feel determines what we'll eventually do. And Jesus is saying, this is what I see. And the closer you get to me, the more you begin to see the things that I see. Because for all of these things that Jesus sees, the last thing that he sees is that he sees an abundant harvest that's waiting for harvesters. It's an abundant harvest waiting for people to go. For all this talk that he says, they're dying, they're hurting, they've got stories, there's pain. Unless we see this, right? The great, the great winners of souls, the men and women of God used by him to bring people out of hell are the ones who saw what Jesus saw. Billy Graham Greatest evangelist the world has known since Apostle Paul, probably even beyond. Billy Graham one day was preparing for a, for a crusade, and he said to the organizers of this, he said, can you give me a list of people who are most broken, who are most hurting in your city? I want my team of people to begin to pray for them. And the city leaders said, one second, Dr. Graham, we'll be right back. They came back to him, and they presented him a phone book of their city. Every person is hurting. D.L. Moody, great winner of souls, used by God in the 1800s. One British friend asked him, companion said, hey, how is it that you're so effective in your evangelism? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to? I want to know. 
that come to the top of this building. And he said, look at these crowds of people. What do you see? They said, we see people. I see people. I see crowds of people. He said, look again. What do you see? He said, I see people walking around. He said, no, no, don't, you don't see. You don't see. Look one more time. What do you see? He said, I see people. I see men and I see women and I see children. Frustrated, he said, I don't understand what you're trying to get me to see. And Moody said, listen, unless you see, here's what I see. With tears, as he walked to the window, with tears in his eyes, he, see, he says, I see dying people going to hell without a savior. He said, that's what I see said, unless you see that, you will never be able to engage the harvest. You'll never be an effective winner of souls. You'll never be able to depopulate hell in your generation. Our generation of believers is responsible for our generation of souls. They said, well, you see the things that I see. For all of that, people who are dying and people hurting, Jesus does not say, as you look out into the fields, He doesn't say, I see the worst drought and the worst famine and the worst crop failure in the history of man. What does he see? He sees beyond all that. And he says in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. He says, row after row after row after row, as far as the eye can see of people waiting to be reaped, just wait so abundant that the only thing limiting them coming to know me is that there's not enough workers. Think this is what he sees. Say, will you join in harvesting these lost souls? He says, that's what I see. Football season is starting. For some of you, probably wise, that's not a good thing. But for husbands, that's a great thing. The preseason has just begun. Second week is almost over. Two or three more weeks, and then the regular season starts. But any good football player worth their salt knows that it's not just about the 17 plus five weeks of the actual game time that matters. It's a year-round thing of blood and sweat and tears in order to make it. But what does it mean to make it? Does it mean to be on the team to get into a preseason game? No. They know that there's far bigger things than that. To make it onto the regular season roster to get in a game. That's awesome. But the reason they play their 17 games and then into the playoffs is because they want to be playing that first Sunday of February. That's the Super Bowl. And it's what every person who ever grows up playing football dreams to be on that center stage, the most magnificent stage in all of not only sports, but entertainment history. When the two remaining teams, all their contenders and competitors have fallen by the wayside. It's just the two of them as they walk out into that stadium filled with people, millions of hundreds of millions throughout the world watching. They say, this is what we live for. This is our day. This is our moment. This is our time. No football player who's made it that far. Says, you know what, guys? I got a little sniffle. I'm going to sit this one out. You know, guys, I'm feeling a little bit tired. Been playing for all these weeks, all these months. I'll sit this one out. I'm not going to play. Everyone will be like, are you kidding me? You've gotten this far and you don't want to get into fight. This is what we live for. 
It's the Super Bowl. For a baseball player, it's the World Series. For an NBA player, it's the NBA Finals. For a farmer, it's the harvest. Everything about their life is for this one crowning moment. We buy a field, sacrificing everything to get this field. We do our best to pull out the weeds. We scatter our seed. We plow it. We pour it in. We water it. We wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. And then when that first sign of the harvest comes, they say, yes, this is what we live for. This is what it's all about. This is what I give my life for. Jesus is saying, this is what we give our lives for. As a church, everything that we've been doing, everything that we do has brought us to this one crowning moment. And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. It's here. Will you see it? Will you see it all around? There are people waiting to be brought in. And so many people are just sitting there saying, you know what? I'll just sit this one out. You say, no, this is what we live for. You know, Keishla said it as she stood up here in weeks and months, in the past few months. God has been drawing so many more people to us. The harvest is here. The kingdom is near. And God is saying, it's here. This is our time. This is our time. It's not time for us to sleep. It's not time for us to sit back. This is where we go for it. This is what it's all about. It's here. The harvest is here and it's ready. There are people who are waiting. If you would just say the word. Do you see it? Do you see with the eyes of Jesus? Do you feel the things that he feels that we're on the verge, man? When we go into that new building, this place is going to explode. Are you ready for it? Are you ready to reach out to those who are needy, who are coming, who are dying, who are dead? This is our time. This is what we live for. And if you see, and it will cause you to say, listen, guys, Lord Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love as you have loved me because I was once one of the lost. So that everything I am for your kingdom's cause. What we see determines what we feel. And Jesus saw, and he felt, and it led him into action. Everything it was about Jesus' life was because he saw, and it led him to a cross where every ounce of blood, every ounce of sweat, every drop of tears that came out of him, he saw harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. So he became harassed. He became helpless. He was left to die because he would rather trade places with you and with me and with all who are dying than to see us die alone. So he died naked, bruised, beaten, alone. A sheep led to the slaughter. The Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold, the Lamb of God who makes us whole again. And he says, if you have received, if you've received, will you not go and lay down your life in joyful witness? That's what we live for. What we join hands for.
John Ortberg, my favorite authors and preachers, talks about this group that was formed about 300 years ago, 300 years ago in Nantucket Island near Boston, Massachusetts. There's a group of people who lived on the shore. And in those days, as it is today, travel up in the Atlantic, very dangerous, nor'easters, perfect storms, all that stuff, countless lives lost at sea. There's a group of people who lived up and down that island who could not bear to see lives being lost under their watch. And so they formed a group of people who said, let's build huts and let's plant them on the shore so that when we hear of shipwreck, as communication comes, we can go into the water and we can save people with our boats. Let's get the, the, the best resources we can because lives are precious and they cannot be lost on the high seas. And so there was a group of people who saw and they felt and they were moved to action. They were called the Humane Society of Nantucket Island. And they developed a motto that says, we don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. That these people who would give up their resources, who would sacrifice their futures, their families, their lives in order that they would save a people they never knew, whose names they would never see, whose faces they would never before recognize. But they understood what it meant that every soul matters, every life matters. We don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. And so they did. And countless times they would bring back dying people and they would rescue them and they would celebrate that we brought another one in. And some of them would risk their lives going to places that no one else would dare to go. They said, we don't have to come back, but we've got to go. We've got to go. Many people were saved through that soul-saving station, that life-saving station on Nantucket Island. But in time, the U.S. Coast Guard came in and said, we will help you in this effort. A government agency, we've got resources. And so together, side by side, they saved so many people, brought so many people from the brink of death so that they could find life, be reunited with their family. But as time went on, that little group of people began to say, the professionals are better at doing this than we are. We don't need to do this anymore. They've got all that it takes. We don't need to go on our soul-saving mission anymore. And so they withdrew and allowed the professionals to take over. But that small group of people could not get themselves to disband. They just loved being together. And so they would get together. They still do this in Boston, Massachusetts. Every so often they have a dinner, the Humane Society of Nantucket Island. They give out awards, they laugh, and they dance together but they no longer know the meaning. We don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. They don't know the joy and the thrill of saving people from the brink of death and bringing them into life. They don't have that thrill anymore. Didn't happen overnight. Happened over time that this group of people began to lose sight of their mission. It happened then and it can happen to anyone. It can happen to a church. Maybe not overnight, but over time. It can happen to me. It can happen to you.
but just as surely as a goat. Right? That vision can be recaptured. We join hands together, starts by asking God, can I see what you see? Can I feel what you feel? Can I go where you go? Because the harvest is plentiful. This is our time. Let's pray. Guys, it's the harvest is here. Dying people all around. The harvest is plentiful. It's waiting for you to go. Maybe we're focused on the unripe harvest, but God is saying, Jesus is saying, there are some who are so ready. If you'd open your eyes to see them and go to them, would you? Who are those people in your life that are so close? Let's pray for them right now. Pray for yourself, Lord. Help me to see what you see. Pray for our church, Lord. May we join hands together. Wake up to see the need around us. This is what we give our lives to. This is why we gather. This is why house churches meet. This is why our youth ministry meets. We live for the harvest. And it's ready. Will you go? Will you follow? Let's pray together. A few moments right now. Lord, help me to live for you. I don't want to waste my time on things that don't matter. I want to give my life. I want to give my life for the one and the ones who matter for all eternity. Let's pray for a couple moments together, and then I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to continue to worship the Lord through giving and our singing, our commitment to the Lord. Let's pray together. Some of them are ready to pray to the Lord or open their hearts. Give me the courage to talk to them this week. To come back next week with a testimony that indeed the harvest is plentiful. Just waiting for the workers. Father in heaven, may we not lose sight of our vision. May we not lose sight of why we exist. May we not lose sight of the words of Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. May we not lose sight of these words because we're afraid of what people will say. May we not be afraid of how we'll be treated. May we not be afraid, but we know that we have the answer to every question that the human heart is asking, to every longing that the human soul desires. 
Father, help us to see, help us to feel, help us to live for the harvest. As we join hands together, may we be a church that seeks, as Jesus did, and saves the lost. We thank you. We love you, but not only that, we love this world because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all rise.